0: The passage on which the teaching is based this morning is uh, what seems to be the rest of the Gospel of John. And so, if you turn to chapter 6, verse 1, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough, bre- enough bread for each of them to get a little. I'm sorry. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place, where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, how's your diet? Are you eating well? It seems hard these days to engage a conversation in which someone isn't talking about some aspect of their diet. What they're eating, what they're choosing not to eat, how it's affecting their body, right? You can be you can give up anything that's processed and be paleo and Eat as if you're a, a tribal person of ancient days. Or you can decide that, that meat is the problem and go vegetarian. Or uh, it's funny, not that long ago, fat was really bad. But apparently now fat is good. And so butter is back. And you can spread a little bit extra on your toast and such. Or you can avoid carbs altogether and go that route and just eat meat and cheese and protein and fat. and Right? that really, you can do almost anything or find a camp that might represent that view. And uh, as I occasionally wade in and, of course, try to want to be healthy and want to feel good, and even though I don't exercise as much discipline in that area as I would like, I occasionally listen to things. And so it wasn't that long ago that I was listening to a book on tape, and the book is entitled Wee Belly. And it's written by a doctor, and it's one of these... One of these uh, arguments that are made about a particular bent within dietary restrictions, and he says that wheat is really the evil thing, and if you avoid wheat, then you're going to be good to go. Now, my point here is not to advocate any particular dietary regimen. I am neither doctor nor scientist, and am not qualified to do so. But the fascinating thing about wheat belly, to me, was actually the story of wheat. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of wheat, but bread as we know it is not bread as the world apparently knew it. In fact, bread as the world has known it was uh, very dense and crumbly and not very exciting, uh, but pretty nutritious. And it wasn't until the late 1800s as uh, scientists and food people were kept working, trying to find um, the pursuit was for a dough that would be more workable. A traditional, historically, bread dough was not workable. It wasn't something that was easy to play with. You couldn't make a lot of things with it. And so they kept trying different things. And at one point, and I don't know why they tried this. I listened to this a while ago, so you're getting kind of the fast and loose version of what I remember. But under some circumstance, somebody decided to ask the question, what would happen if we saturated wheat with ammonia gas? Right? which I think is basically a form of a poisonous gas. And lo and behold, they did that, and what they created was bleached flour. And the world changed. Well of a sudden you had a dough that was very malleable, and you could work with it. And uh, all of the, the things that we love, the donuts and the light pastries and the delicious loaves of bread, these are all the result of bleaching flour. They didn't exist prior to that science being invented. But as time began to roll on, what they realized was, oh yeah, there's one problem with bleaching flour. You, you pretty much remove anything that has any nutritional value from the wheat in the process of bleaching the flour. And so, so doctors and scientists were actually testifying before Congress shortly into the 20th century, right, in the early 1900s, that, uh, diabetes and heart disease have dramatically increased and we think it's related to bleaching flour. Right. We think we're so, so I, w- I, thought this was a new conversation. I was like, oh, this is not a new conversation. So, decades march on. It's a big argument. Eventually, Congress feels like they have to wade in and say, okay, well, we need a healthy bread. Uh, we're talking about kids not getting the nutrition they need. We're talking about health effects. And so, so what they do, they don't say, let's go back and reappropriate bread as we used to know it. They said, we just need to come up with a loaf of bread that has all the things we've taken out. And so they make a loaf of bread in which they reinsert all the nutritional value. In the 1940s, this is law, and it becomes uh, what was a dominant staple of the country for a number of decades, Wonder Bread. Why is Wonder Bread a wonder? Because it, when you make Wonder Bread, it's nutritionless, and then you have to put all of the nutrition into it artificially, So, and that's why it's a wonder. You fast-forward a little bit, you think things are going okay. It's in the 60s and 70s that uh, science again moves forward, and we begin to genetically modify wheat. Again, trying to make these, these more pliable doughs that can do different things and make exciting creations. And we do that, and uh, in the 70s and 80s and up until now, basically diabetes and heart disease have risen significantly, and you have all the discussions about gluten and gluten-related illnesses and how it's affecting the body. And at this point, we, uh, we've gone so far that we don't even actually really have the wheat strands that most of the history of the world consumed. They're gone. We've, uh, rely now almost exclusively on genetically modified, uh, forms of wheat. And now your average slice of wheat bread, right? Not white bread, but wheat bread, uh, raises your blood sugar, uh, more than a, a Snickers bar. I found all of this pretty, pretty fascinating, interesting. What's really interesting to me is culturally, what does it tell us about a pe- tell us about ourselves as a people? That we would willingly follow our appetites and our desires and what tastes good to create something that ultimately is not only nutritionless, but is actually bad for us. Isn't that fascinating? that that's what we've effectively done with wheat and bread. And now we're in debating all these kinds of crises, these different forms of health problems, as a result of having do- done this, rather than actually perhaps pause and say, well, what really is healthy bread? And maybe we should maintain that or preserve that. And it's, a, it's an interesting lens by which to look at John chapter 6, because it's the exact sort of thing going on in which the people are receiving Jesus, but... They want to receive an image of Jesus rather than who Jesus really is. So they say, I, we want the Jesus of our appetites and desires, not really Jesus. And so they're willing to perhaps walk down a road in which they would choose a Jesus that doesn't actually offer the nutrition that Jesus is intended to offer. They don't want Him as bread. They want simply what He has to offer as bread. The question to you throughout the entire, our entire consideration of John chapter six is, do you really want Jesus? Or do you just want what Jesus does for you? Or what you perceive Him to do for you? Well, how do we see this? There are three aspects that I want us to consider. One, excuse me, being let's make Jesus king. Number two, where did He go? And number three, how hungry are you? So number one, the first aspect is let's make Jesus king. Number two, where did he go, he being Jesus? And number three, uh, how hungry are you? So first, let's make Jesus king. jesus uh, It's a neat picture of Jesus' compassion on the people as they've gathered there, this massive crowd that uh, has come not thinking through that they would need resources to eat. They simply have wanted to hear Jesus' words. He looks on them and realizes they're going to be hungry, and he starts to execute a plan. And he uses it also as a moment of teaching, asking Philip, even though he knows what he's going to do, Philip, what do we need to feed these people? (laughs) Philip chuckled. Two hundred denarii, denarius, one denarius being roughly a day's wage. Two hundred denarii would not be enough to buy enough bread to feed the crowd that is gathered here. Andrew says, well, we've got, we have a boy here, we found, he's got two fish and five loaves of barley, but what is that for this many people? Jesus says, have the crowd sit down and proceeds to perform this outstanding miracle. Right at the outset, it's a picture for me of the compassion of Jesus. Perhaps you've been in a place where you You want Jesus to work something in your life. You want to experience more of Him, and yet you're reluctant to draw near to Him because you feel like you don't have enough. Things aren't quite in order. And if you could just put them in order or have a little bit more to bring Him to work with, then you might beseech Jesus to work on your behalf. But you find that if you go to that place very often, you never really have enough. Things are never really in the order that you want them to be in, to have Jesus actually intercede in what's going on. And here's a picture of where Philip says, nothing can happen here, we don't have enough money. Andrew says, we've got a little bit of food, but it's not enough, nothing can be done. Jesus is delighted to take that very small amount, to multiply it, to glorify himself, but also to, to share himself with the people, to feed the people. And to me, it's an encouragement to remember that Jesus isn't waiting for me to have enough. He simply desires for you to bring that which you may have so that He might multiply it, so that He might be a blessing to you. And this is indeed what He'll do, of course, as the story proceeds. The people are delighted with what Jesus has done, right? Great miracle. Notice that after they've eaten uh, uh, the barley loaves and the fish, it says that they've eaten to their fill. They are very satisfied, and then they pick up twelve baskets left over of the bread. There is super abundance from what Jesus has done. Then, how do the people process it? What's the conclusion that they come to? This is the prophet. This is the one who is spoken of. The next Moses. He is the one who's going to lead us. Let's make him king. That's what we're going to do with him. And Jesus understands that they're going to do that and walks away. He disappears. Do you see the grace? The dangerous moment that exists in verse 15 that the people would want to take Jesus and make him king by force. Let's go to the Roman governor's house in Jerusalem and knock on his door and kick him out. And then in two weeks, we can march on Rome. The king has finally come. God has shown up. Things are going to happen. And Jesus removes, He pulls Himself out, rather than lending Himself to the story that they want to happen. And you have to see that as profound and amazing grace. Because for all of us, there is nothing worse that could happen than Jesus lending Himself to our story. The story that you want to happen, the dreams that you envision for yourself, the ways that you hope Jesus will make your life go forward, whether it's job and security, or your kids and your home, or your marriage, whatever these are, and you think, oh, this is what is going to be of my life, and if Jesus simply came and made your dreams come true, your vision come true, that would be terrible. Because the people's vision is not informed correctly, and neither is ours. Dominated as it is by our own selfishness and our lack of understanding of what God is doing in the world. It's complete grace that Jesus would remove himself, but at the same time, what remarkable discipline He's here to do the will of the Father. But how, Jesus in His humanity, how tempting must this moment have been? In other words, God wants to make me king. I know that my road is headed in that direction, but I'm pretty sure that my road with God involves suffering and death. And here the people are ready to make me king now. Why not go down this road? It still ends at kingship but I don't think it involves the same suffering and death as the other road does. And Jesus says, no, I will stick with the will of the Father rather than going down the road that might be easier or might involve less suffering. As He does so, He creates a problem really for those who are wrestling with who He is as He's disappearing. And we'll unveil in verse 26... Why are the people continuing to seek him? Because they ate their fill. They they aren't really following simply for the signs that he's done, miraculous as they are, nor are they following simply for the fact that they think he is the prophet that has been prophesied to come, that he is. But they're following because, hey, who wouldn't want a king who manufactures food? You never have to work again. Your bellies are filled. That would be an ideal king. Jesus reveals to them in verse 26, this is the reason that you have followed after me. You are driven by your appetites. You prefer an image of who I am to who I really am. Do you see the tension that's created here? That the people think that they know who Jesus is, and so they have in their minds an image that's formulated of who He should be and what He should do. And it's that that they're linking to. It's that that they're gravitating to. And Jesus is going to disappear and cause this image to crumble, but it, it reminds us of how dangerous it is to, to link to, to attach to any image that isn't going to satisfy. There was a, an essay that was kind of sad. Uh, it came out a couple of weeks ago. It was an interview with Billy Joel, who's been kind of off the radar for a while. One of the most successful musicians in recent history but someone who has been absent, and um, the uh, the essayist opens it this way, writing, Billy Joel has led the kind of life only a fool would hope for. No realist would ever dream of attaining the level of success he has achieved. He has sold more than 100 million records, which is more than any solo artist except Garth Brooks and Elvis Presley. He has dated supermodels, and he married one of them. Drunk people will sing Piano Man for as long as there are karaoke bars, so he shall live forever. This fall, he will embark on a stadium tour with Elton John and they will sell out Madison Square Garden on the strength, strength of songs that are two decades old. In three decades, 33 hits in the top 46 Grammy Awards. It's hard to describe someone more at the pinnacle of success of pop music than Billy Joel. And yet, as he's aging and reflecting on his life, he finds himself incredibly dissatisfied. That He finds himself looking back and saying, I, I, I thought that this image of being a rock star and married to Christie Brinkley and uh, achieving astounding success and being rich and having my mansion in the Hamptons, that that would, what else could a person want? I'll be happy. I'll be successful. And now as he looks back on his life, he says there's one song that he's written that particularly captures his where he's at and how he looks at his life. And it's one of his more obscure songs entitled Where's the Orchestra, which talks about being, uses the idea of a theater as a metaphor for loneliness. In other words, as if somebody is watching something go on in a theater but feels very much removed from it. Right? Have you ever felt that way going through life, that you're kind of watching things go on, but you feel detached? So Billy Joel says, this, this is where I am at this point in my life. And the lyrics say, I like the scenery, even though I have absolutely no idea at all what is being said, despite the dialogue. And Joel says, "The song still applies to me. I heard it the other day and it still moved me because I feel like that today. I've only felt content a few times in my life, and it never lasted. I'm very discontented right now. There are situations in my life that didn't pan out. I'm like most other human beings. I try and fail. The whole metaphor of that song is that life is a theatrical play, and it's all a tragedy. And even though you can enjoy the comedic, ironic elements of what you're experiencing, life will always come up and whap you on the head. Right? You expect to hear that coming out of the words of someone who's who's really had kind of a hard road, who has reason to despair for some reason. And here's someone who has everything that the world, in terms of power and prestige, might have to offer. And he says, you know what? It's all a tragedy. That's what the story of life is. And sooner or later, it's just going to whap you on the head. It's a despairing voice. Despairing out of, I made the mistake of, Attaching to an image and assuming that that image of wealth and power and success would deliver to him what he expected it to. Now the point of that analogy is, yes, we do the same thing all the time. But what this passage is about, even more importantly, is about attaching to an image of Jesus. Saying, yes, I like the guy who feeds me, who fills my belly, I want to make him king when that's really not what Jesus is here to do. He's not simply here to feed your belly. He's not simply here to meet your appetites. And so how dangerous it is when we enter into a relationship with an image rather than with Jesus himself, and are content to, to eat the bread that he manufactures in a miracle rather than to eat him, who is the bread of life. And if you don't understand that distinction, then you need to wrestle with the question, do I really know him? Do I really know Jesus in a way that I would feast on Him as the bread of life? Our second point is, where did He go? And theologians, some wrestle with this little passage about Jesus walking on the water. They feel like it's inserted at a very inappropriate time. Because you've got the miracle of uh, the loaves and the fish, and then you've got the teaching that explains where Jesus wants to go based on that miracle. And in the middle, you've got this weird little story of him walking on the water. And they think, oh, somebody later accidentally inserted this. Or it was part of the tradition and it got carried over. I think it's essential that it's there. And a number of commentators realize that, that it's important for this reason. The people are ready to make Jesus king. It's a triumphant moment, but they misunderstand who Jesus is. They, they They're worshiping an image of him rather than him and so he withdraws so that image has opportunity to collapse and can you imagine the disciples were at a great moment the people are ready we now have momentum there's critical mass let's move this project forward and jesus vanishes you think where is he but this we everyone was on the same page to make him king except him and of course the disciples right everyone's where's jesus what's going on what's the what's the story here and they withdraw, not having any answers. They head out onto the sea at night in their boat, and the storm picks up, the wind is blowing strong. Imagine being at that place. Jesus has provided an opportunity where the disciples must wrestle with the question, well, maybe we thought this was set in this direction, and Jesus was going to be king, but now he's vanished, so this must not be his agenda. So maybe we got his agenda wrong and now we're at the place where we have to say, oh, well, do we want to carry forward with the agenda that we thought we understood or, or did we get it wrong and do we really want Jesus? You see what kind of moment it is? It's a moment to really decide whether you want Jesus as Jesus is or whether you're just connected to an image of him. I resonate strongly with this, this section of, of the passage because there are seasons, and, and to some extent I'm coming out of one now, in which Jesus just feels like he disappeared. He, he feels like he, he vanished. And you're know, like, where'd you go? And the beauty of those moments is that they are opportunities. There are opportunities for this to be revealed, that we are constantly attaching to images of Jesus rather than to Jesus. And it's only when he pulls back a bit where you then say, oh, well, do I really want the agenda that I thought was being carried out? Whatever I wanted for my life or whatever I wanted for the church? Or do I actually want him? Because apparently I can't hold them together. And apparently I've made, manufactured stories that Jesus isn't necessarily interested in. He pulls back. I say, my goodness, it's not a contest. I really want Jesus. And I come back to Jesus and I understand him in new ways. And this is the opportunity for the disciples on the sea. I say, oh. Things aren't going to go forward as we expected. It's not going to be a triumphant procession to achieve Jesus' kingship, but we still want Jesus. And that's how Jesus meets them. He even encourages them, walking on the water. You know, in, in Jewish Jewish theology, water is... You know, Jew, the Jews weren't seafaring people, and, and the water is often associated with chaos and death. And here comes Jesus treading on chaos and death itself. From creation, it's almost the aspect of creation that was never ordered. There was never, you know, God sets up this realm for humanity and animals to dwell in, but the sea is this, is kind of scary and unformed and more chaotic. And in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of the storm, here comes Jesus. Says, you thought you knew who I was. I'm the one who treads on chaos. I walk across death. You wanted to make me an earthly king. You have no idea who I am. And it's at that moment that they begin to get more of Jesus as a result of having their image dashed. Jesus works this continually beautiful revelation of Himself as they work through that. And He comes back to the people and He's going to do the same thing for the people. And so we have to consider how hungry are they and how hungry are you. Jesus sets up the people to wrestle with the, their image of Him as well. Coming back and saying in verse twenty-seven, "Don't no labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The Son of Man will grant it." And the people say, "But that's what we want. What do we need to do?" And Jesus says, "You have only to believe. I am the bread of life." You see, if you just go back to the miracle. And just the previous day, you have a situation in which, yes, let's make Jesus king. He provides bread. He feeds us. And a day later says, Jesus, no, you don't understand. When I'm king, I am bread. I don't provide it. I'm not just giving you something to feed your belly. I'm giving you me, and only by virtue of feeding on me will you actually be filled up. And so it's with this that the people must wrestle, that he is indeed the bread of life. And yet notice in verse 36 that Jesus says to them, you've seen Me, you've seen these miraculous works, and yet you do not believe. Now let's let's be clear. Who are we talking about? The crowds that are following Jesus, who have seen His miraculous works, who have said He is the prophet who was to come, who want to make Him king. In other words, they've recognized Him in part correctly. They're all for Him. They want to promote Him. And Jesus says to them, you haven't believed. You don't really understand who I am. If you did, you wouldn't be satisfied with the loaves and fish. You would know that you need to feed on Me. And that's the question for us this morning. In what ways are we satisfied with the loaves and fish? In what ways are you satisfied with the ways in which Jesus, you feel like Jesus is doing something in your life, solving some problem for you, and you say, yes, glory be to God, thanks be to Him, let's keep moving, I want to see my story unfold. Do you dare to pray, Jesus, I think I've really been worshiping an image of You, rather than You. And I'd rather have You than simply what You do in my life. Now, know what's going to happen if you pray that prayer. You're going to find yourself alone on the Sea of Galilee. right? Because Jesus is going to have to withdraw to a certain extent. Something's going to have to happen that your image that you've attached to of Him is going to be destroyed. And as a result then, He can come to you and say, It's I. Don't be afraid. And in that, there's such opportunity for intimacy, but not only intimacy, to be fed to be given food that does not perish, to be given food that grants eternal life. How sad that we often conceive of eternal life as something that happens in the future. In the conception of the Gospels, eternal life or abundant life, they go hand in hand is something that begins when one comes to believe in Jesus. And we think, oh, life just goes on as it is until we die or Jesus comes back. No. Life begins when you come to believe in Jesus. And if you haven't tasted the sweetness of life being fed by the bread of life, then it's time to pray. It's time to examine your heart and say, in what ways have I worshipped an image of Jesus, rather than really pursuing the bread of life? So come to the table this morning rejoicing, because Jesus offers you Himself right? what glory, what provision, to be thankful, but also at the same time to ask truly, do I believe that what I consume, what's represented here, is the most important thing for me possibly to have? Jesus, please, please, let me feed on you more and more. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you. You are glorious. And we thank you that you love us so much that you would not play to the stories and drums and tunes that we would have you dance to, but instead you are willing to allow us to have moments on the sea in which you would draw us unto yourselves and allow us to have more of you. For that abundant grace and provision we give you thanks and pray that you would feed us here at this table this morning. Feed us bread of life and may we have more of you that we might be more filled up and know more and more of what is the eternal and abundant life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.